Whether you're a regular member here at Oak Mountain or whether you're visiting with us, uh, we're glad for your presence. Uh, I would say that if you're visiting with us, maybe considering uh, becoming a regular member here at Oak Mountain, we sure would uh, invite uh, you to uh, meet with us and talk with us about that. We'll be glad to answer any questions you might have about the church here. And so uh, we certainly would invite you to do that. Appreciate Brother Eric's prayer this evening, praying on behalf of the church here. And I would encourage you to do that in your, in your private prayers at home. Pray for the well-being of the church here at Oak Mountain. And so whatever you pray, whether before you go to bed or when you get up or before you go to bed and when you get up and during the day, uh, just remember to pray for the church here that we'll be able to reach out to those in our community, those that are around us that are lost, and bring them in to the Lord's kingdom and uh, teach them uh, and bring them along and uh, help them to be able to thrive spiritually by their association with us. And so keep that, keep that in your prayers. Well, we talk about the Bible being a book, but it's really more than one book, isn't it? it it's really a, a veritable library, is, isn't it? And it contains all kinds of different books. Uh, just think about the different kinds of literature that we have in the Bible. We have a book of poetry in the Bible, and the book of Psalms, and we have a book of Proverbs, just a collection of wise sayings. In the book of Proverbs and other books as well, we find Proverbs. We find some, uh, some philosophy in the Bible as well. For example, the book of Ecclesiastes would certainly fall into that category, I think, pretty easily. We find prophetic literature. We find a collection of letters in the New Testament, letters that Paul wrote, letters that Peter wrote, and so a wide variety of kinds of literature in the Bible. But a large percentage of the Bible, a large portion of the Bible, is made up of narrative or, or storytelling. I think I've counted 13 books of the Bible are, are completely narrative, com just storytelling. Genesis is storytelling, isn't it? The Gospels are storytelling. The book of Acts tells a story. And so it's narrative. It, it tells a story. And I don't mean to suggest that they're uh, fictional stories. They're, they're nonfiction. They're true-to-life stories, but stories nonetheless. Uh, there are five books of the New Testament that are story or narrative. We find narrative in other books of the Bible as well. I think, for example, of the first half of the book of Daniel and all the stories about Daniel and his three friends that we find there. The Bible is a record of God's efforts to bring sinful men and women into fellowship with Himself and he does this by acting within human history and human events. And so God is going to bring men and women who have fallen into sin, alienated themselves from Him. He's going to bring them back into fellowship with Himself. And He does that by, by interjecting Himself, so to speak, in the course of human events. In the course of human history, we find God's activity. And so... The story of God's redeeming effort is, is just that. It's, it's the story of God's interaction with Abraham. It's the story of God's interaction with David. It's the story of God's interaction with, and actually God coming into the world in the form of Jesus Christ. And so the question is, what are we to do with these stories? 
Uh, what are we, how are we to deal with? How, do we, how are we to handle the narrative that we find in the Bible? Are these stories really nothing more than interesting accounts of ancient people? Well, wasn't that Abraham an interesting guy, you know? Or, or David, wasn't he an interesting king and all the things he was able to accomplish? Is it just sort of an, uh, an account of some interesting men and women who lived uh, a long time ago? Or are they something more? And so I want to try to entertain that question for a little while tonight. And then we're going to go on into part two of the lesson. So two parts to the lesson tonight. The first one is the significance of story or narrative in the New Testament. I think we can learn how to handle the stories and what we are to make of the narratives that we find in the Bible. We gain some insight into what to do with these from the way the New Testament writers handle the stories of the Old Testament. What do they make of them? What do they do with the, the stories? The book of 2 Timothy, for example, chapter 3 tells us in verses 16 and 17 that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so the Old Testament stories, the New Testament writers believe, were inspired by God. This is God's Word. And as he goes on to say, for, profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. Consequently, they understood the accounts of the Old Testament to be true and factual. And so God says, this is what happened to a man named Abraham. A man named David lived at this time, and this is what happened to him. A man named Hezekiah lived during this time, and this is what he did. And so those are not just accidental or random accounts that have survived all the you know, slings and arrows of history. This is God's Word preserved for us, inspired by God. And if the Scripture speaks of an individual as factual and historical, then we can, we can count on that. A couple of illustrations of that, of that idea is found in uh, Jesus and Paul. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus refers to the Genesis account of creation. Haven't you read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? So Jesus is endorsing the story of creation. This is what actually happened. Haven't you read about that? Don't you understand what God did when he made man and woman in the very beginning? And so he's drawing out from that story uh, factual information. Paul does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5. As he refers to the Genesis account of creation as well. Paul treats Adam and Eve as actual people, not, not legendary figures, not mythological beings, but actual figures. And so passages like Romans chapter 5 and verses 12 and following where Paul discusses the work of Adam and then the work of Christ. Adam is treated just as factually and as much a historical figure as is Christ. And so these are real people who live during this period of time. These are things that happened to them, and we need to draw out from their lives uh, important spiritual truth. So men like Noah and Abraham and Moses and Job and David and Jonah, all referred to as actual historical figures. The New Testament authors appeal to Old Testament stories then to establish spiritual principles, to establish principles of spiritual truth. So that's, that's an important idea. I want to try to say that again. As we'll see, the New Testament writers 
appeal to the Old Testament narratives, the Old Testament stories, to establish spiritual truth, principles of spiritual truth. Now let me illustrate that by looking at two or three passages. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham to leave his family, go to a land that he would show them, show him, and he would eventually inherit that land, at least his descendants would. Uh, God was going to make of his descendants a great nation, and they were going to inherit that land, and eventually in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so there are those three important promises made to Abraham. Well, a long period of time passes by, and, and apparently they're not fulfilled. And so Abraham begins to wonder how they're going to be fulfilled. And in Genesis chapter 15, he wonders, well, maybe it's my servant Eliezer who's going to be my heir. And then God says, of course, no, it's not going to be him, but one from your own body is going to be your heir. And verse 5 says, he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And then verse 6 then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's just part of the story. Abraham believed God, believed in the promise that God made him, and God put it down to his account for righteousness. You know what Paul does with that in Romans chapter 4? Paul quotes that very passage in his efforts to prove that we are justified by faith and not by works of the law. And so in Romans chapter 4, he says in verse 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. And so what, what's Paul doing with this story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15? Well, he's extracting from that story a principle of spiritual truth. The spiritual truth is we are justified, we are counted right before God on the basis of our obedient faith rather than on the basis of works of the law. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus appeals to the story of the flood. And he draws out from that story spiritual truth, important spiritual truth. Verse 37, The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in, 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 the, for as in those days before the flood... They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they didn't understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 42, therefore be on the alert, for you don't know which day your Lord is coming. So he goes back into the story of Noah. And just like people were unprepared when the flood came, what the Lord says is people are going to be unprepared when I come in judgment. So you need to be ready. You need to be on the alert. That's important spiritual truth. The day of judgment is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. We need to be prepared. We don't need to be caught off guard as they were in the days of Noah. And this, now let's look at one other example. In James chapter 2. Look at James chapter 2. Verse 21 James asks the question, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? He said that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And it was called the friend of God. He said a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also 
justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And so here's James reaching back, in fact, to the same episode in Abraham's life, Genesis 15:6, drawing out that statement, Abraham believed God, but he's also adding to that the episode involving the sacrifice of Isaac and saying that Abraham's faith is perfected in his works by offering his son Isaac in obedience to the Lord's test. So James is drawing out from these stories, drawing out spiritual truth, principles of spiritual truth that should guide what we say and what we do in religious matters, what our doctrine is and what our practice is. In 1 Corinthians 10, in fact, Paul refers to a series of events that take place in the wandering period. And he says, in fact, we ought to be learning, learning from them. Verse 6 says of 1 Corinthians 10, These things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. That happened at Mount Sinai, Exodus 32. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. The sin at Peor, Numbers chapter 25. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Uh, it happened to them in response to their complaining. Numbers chapter 21. Again, verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. So how do the New Testament writers use the Old Testament stories? Well, we've looked at these several examples here, and we can summarize it by saying that the stories of the Bible establish principles of spiritual truth. Sometimes those principles might be, we might be able to state them in a positive way. This story shows us that we are justified by faith and not by works of the law. Sometimes those principles of truth might be able to be stated in a negative way. Don't complain like they did, you know, and suffered for it. Sometimes it's a combination of both. We can see from these stories that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. James chapter 2. I like to say it this way. The stories establish right doctrine and practice. The stories of the Bible are both descriptive and prescriptive. They're descriptive. That is, they describe what happened. They describe what happened in Abraham's life. They describe what happened in the days of Noah. They describe what happened to Rahab and her family. But they're also prescriptive in that they prescribe what we ought to be, what we ought to teach, what we ought to practice as well. And you see, that's exactly what the New Testament writers do with the Old Testament stories. They, they, they recall the stories, they reach back into them, and they bring out the principles of truth that ought to affect our lives. All right, I hope you've hung in there with me on that, because we're going to go look at an Old Testament story in Numbers chapter 15. Let's look at Numbers chapter 15. This happens during the wilderness period, that 40 years when Israel is wandering in the wilderness. They've come up out of uh, Egypt. They've passed through the Red Sea. They've been to Mount Sinai. They've received the law of Moses. And now they're spending that 40 years, really a, a sentence, a penalty upon them for their lack of faith 
40 years in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Verse 32, Now while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation, and they put him in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. The Lord said to Moses, The man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Here's a, sh a short little episode. Uh, it may be that, that you're unfamiliar with it. So short here in the book of Numbers, kind of buried in the depths of the Old Testament. Maybe you're not familiar with it, but just, just a, a story. But a story that we can learn great spiritual truth from. And so I think it will be worth our while to spend a little bit of time talking about this man that was gathering wood, or some versions might say picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. Speaking of sticks on the Sabbath day, they took him into custody. They, they put him in prison, so to speak. Uh, they, they arrested him uh, because he was picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. Well, what was wrong with that? What's wrong with picking up wood or picking up sticks on the Sabbath? We might say sometimes, well, what was wrong with it was he violated the Sabbath. So let's talk about that idea a little bit. We're going to have to talk about the background of the Sabbath as a holy day a little bit. Now, the sanctification of the Sabbath day in the Old Testament really goes back before the law of Moses all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Remember in the account of creation, God creates different things on each of the first six days. Creates light, the firmament, separates the land from the sea, creates the sun, the moon, and the stars, uh, the fish and the birds, and then land animals, including man. And then chapter 2 tells us, on the seventh day, God ceased from His creative activity and entered into rest. Thus the heavens and earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it He had rested, or He rested from all His work which God had created and made. And so, on the seventh day of creation, God completed creation in six days, on that seventh day He rested. The Hebrew word for rest is Shabbat. Shabbat. And that's where we get the word Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of rest. It was to be a day of rest ever since God rested on the seventh day and made it holy. Did you notice that in verse 3? God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. That is, He made it a holy day. And so the background for holding the Sabbath day in reverence goes all the way back to creation, all the way back to God's activity or lack of activity on the seventh day. In Exodus chapter 20 then, when we come to Israel at Mount Sinai, we find the keeping of the Sabbath day being codified, we might say. It's, it's put into law. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Among the Ten Commandments is... Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember, God sanctified it on the seventh day of creation. And now you're to keep it holy. Uh, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day 
of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So now it's part of the law. So the background goes all the way back to creation, but now, now it's part of the law. It's, it's part of the Ten Commandments. Do no work on the seventh day. It was to be kept holy. It was not to be profaned. To make something profane means to make it common, to make it ordinary. And so the seventh day is a holy day, it's a special day, and it's not to be considered a common day. It was not to be profaned. It was not to be used for common purposes any more than one would use a holy shovel for common purposes. Remember in the temple they had all kinds of tools. They had pans and they had censers and they had shovels and all sorts of things that were dedicated to the use in the temple. They were holy articles, holy things. Let's say I'm out with my son doing work one Saturday and I'm, I'm digging something in the ground outside my house and, and my shovel breaks. Would it be appropriate for me to say, son, run up there to the temple, get one of those shovels and we'll dig whatever it is we're digging here just a few feet from the house? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> that would be abhorrent, wouldn't it, to any devout Jew just, just would not use something that was holy for God's purpose, for God's use, and profane it and to make it common. And so they're to keep the Sabbath day holy, and they're not to profane it by doing on the Sabbath day, just making it a common day like every other day. In Exodus chapter 16, verses 22 through 26, we won't go into this, but you remember when manna was provided, it was provided for six days, they were to gather double the amount of manna on the sixth day because no manna was going to be provided on the seventh day. It was a day of rest. And so again, we have this reinforcement of the Sabbath as a holy day. Then go to Exodus chapter 31. Exodus 31 verses 12 through 17. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you, throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And so, this, this is a sign. The Sabbath is a sign to you. It's to remind you of something. That's why I want you to observe it every week. On a weekly basis, you are to be reminded of my relationship with you, that I sanctified you. Therefore, you would observe the Sabbath. It's, a whole, it's holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. The sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It's a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed." That, that seems a little repetitive, doesn't it? As we read through that, I'm thinking, man, I, didn't I read this just in the previous verse? <laughs> but he's emphasizing the idea, isn't it? This is a holy day. You're to keep it holy. You're not to profane it. You're not to treat it as common. You're not to do any work on it. 
God rested on the Sabbath. You're to rest on the Sabbath. And anybody that profanes it, anybody that violates the Sabbath, these rules concerning the Sabbath, is to be put to death. It is holy to you, a day of complete rest. So keeping the Sabbath was a serious thing. Everyone knew the law. This, this was not a minor stipulation, again, buried somewhere in the, in, in the back pages of the Old Testament. This is something that everybody knew. And violating it had serious consequences. It was a capital offense. Because it showed a lack of respect for what God had made holy. That, that's the issue. God had made it holy, and you're treating it as common. And that's, that's a serious event. In fact, really... It's reflection on one, one's respect for God Himself. It's God that made this day holy. It's a special day to God. God rested on the Sabbath. And if you have any respect for me, you'll treat it as I tell you to treat it, as I teach you to treat it. And so ultimately, it reflects on one's respect for God Himself. So going back to Numbers chapter 15, the man profaned the Sabbath. The man who's picking up wood, the man who's picking, picking up sticks. The man has profaned the Sabbath. He, he's treating it as common, really as trivial, isn't it? Now, this isn't some great task that he's been required to do or some, some, some great work that his family is in need of. And if it, doesn't go un, if it goes undone, people are going to suffer. But he's, he's just out picking up sticks. Maybe he wants to build a fire. Building a fire was forbidden on the Sabbath day, by the way. And so maybe he's just gathering wood for a fire. Maybe he's picking up sticks as kindling or something. But, but it's a trivial matter. Kind of reminds me of 30 pieces of silver. You know? It's a trivial thing. And so he profaned the Sabbath day by picking up sticks. Now we might consider that a minor violation. But God considered it a serious offense and the man was to be put to death. Look at the previous statement, Numbers chapter 15. Let's go back to verse 29. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, again, everybody knows this law. It's one of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> a person who does anything defiantly, whether he is a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandments. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be upon him. Then we transition into this story of the man who picked up sticks. Ultimately, of course, he's, he's taken into custody. It, it says that they held him there because it had not been revealed or declared what should be done to him. And then the Lord informs them what he ought to be done, that the entire congregation should take him outside the camp and stone him. And so, and so that's what they do. Well, let's see if we can draw out some spiritual principles of truth here. What spiritual truth can we draw out from the episode? Well, first of all, maybe the most obvious lesson is, it is essential that we respect what God has made holy. It's just essential that we do that. You know, in a way, all days are alike. They include a sunrise, a morning, a noon, a sunset, a night. One passes just like all others pass. 
And in some circumstances, we might lose track of what day it is. You know, I, I kind of sympathize with people that are shut in, maybe in their home or a long-term care facility. And one day is pretty much like the next and like the one that just passed. And, and I can see very easily how you lose track of the days. They're, they're all the same. There, there's not anything special about any particular day inherently at any rate, but God made one day of the week holy, and He meant it to be treated as holy. And those that did not respect it were in trouble. Remember when Moses struck the rock, God, God told him to speak to the rock, and instead of speaking to the rock to provide water for the people, Moses struck the rock. Do you remember what God said about that, what Moses had done, had done wrong? Well, this Numbers 20 and verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly to the land that I've given to them. You didn't treat me as holy. That was the fundamental problem. You see, the holy God said to Moses, I want you to strike the rock. And Moses disregarded what the holy God had told him to do. So he, he didn't respect God's Word. Now he might have done it in a sort of a, an impulsive act, just out of an impulse of anger or frustration, but he did it nonetheless, right? <laughs> and so God said, you didn't treat me as holy. You showed lack of respect for me and for my Word. Therefore, you're going to pay a price for that. Achan in Joshua chapter 6 did not treat God as holy. Uzzah, who put forth his hand to stay the ark of the Lord, did not treat God as holy. And we could multiply the list much further. Now, I understand we don't live under the law of Moses like this man who picked up sticks did. We, we don't live under the law of Moses. Hebrews chapter 9, after a long discussion of the new covenant, the conclusion is he takes away the first covenant that he might establish the second. And so this particular law doesn't apply to us in the same way that it applied to that man. We're just not under the law of Moses the way they were, the way he was. Another good passage, Ephesians 2, verse 15, that, God abol that Christ abolished in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. And so He abolished on the cross in His flesh... The law of commandments, you know, the law of Moses. And so we're not under the law of Moses the way they were. In fact, if you look at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16, you'll find that we're encouraged not to let anyone judge us or criticize us on account of a Sabbath day. Colossians 2 verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink. Remember the special diet Jews were to keep. Uh, and in respect to a festival like the Passover or Pentecost or a new moon or a Sabbath day. So we're not under the Sabbath law the way they were under the Old Covenant, but this principle of spiritual truth continues to hold true, doesn't it? We are to respect what God has made holy. God is holy. We need to treat Him and His Word with respect. His Son is holy, and so we need to treat Him and His Word with respect. The worship is holy. When we come together for worship, we're in a sense on holy ground. We're here in the presence of the Holy God in a special way, and we're worshiping Him and praising Him and singing these songs, these hymns to Him. We need to treat the worship as holy. It is not a common practice. It is not a common, ordinary event. It's a holy thing. 
that we do when we come together for worship. And we need to treat it as such in our attitude and in our behavior. The Lord's Supper is holy. You know, the Bible talks about treating the blood of Christ as a common thing in other contexts, Hebrews chapter 10. And so we're not eating ordinary bread. We're not drinking ordinary grape juice. We're drinking bread and fruit of the vine that has been dedicated to the Lord's purpose, and we need to treat it as such. This is a holy thing that we're doing when we partake of the Lord's Supper. We need to discern the body correctly and eat and drink in a worthy manner. God's Word is holy. Sanctify them. Make them holy in the truth. Your Word is truth. The teaching of the Word is a holy act. Our brethren, the church, the saints are holy people as well. We need to treat one another in a respectful sort of way. And so one thing we learn from this is we better respect what God has made holy. Serious business, isn't it? Well, here's another uh, principle of spiritual truth we can draw out of this. We want to act only where there is direction from the Lord. Did you notice back in Numbers chapter 15 that the man violated the Sabbath day? They arrested him, so to speak. They, they put him in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. Now, that's, that's a little puzzling, isn't it? We, we've already seen that the Sabbath was established really long before this man came along as one of the Ten Commandments. What, what does it mean that it had not yet been declared what should be done to him? Well, it may be that Moses knew the penalty, but there were specifics, there were details about it that he was unsure about. Just exactly how should that be carried out? And so he waited until the specifics and the details were clarified by the Lord. Take him outside the camp and the entire congregation are to participate in, in his death. And when, they, when that was clarified by the Lord, they went forward with the punishment. But whatever is meant here, might be that, might be something else, but whatever is meant, Moses did not go forward with the punishment until there was guidance from God. He didn't just act on his own best judgment. He didn't just say, well, you know what, I think this would work out pretty good. Let's do that. Or, you know, I think this would work well. Let's, let's do it that way. No, he didn't do any of that. He, he didn't trust his own judgment or his own opinion he wanted to wait until there was some direction from the Lord. Now, that's good practice, isn't it? We don't want to just assume, hey, that's a good idea, or I like that, or, you know, I've got a brother-in-law and he goes to church over there, they do it this way, you know. Well, we, we want direction from the Lord before we move forward. When this church started back in 1980, uh, there was a question asked in some way, I'm sure, what are we going to do in worship? How are we going to conduct our worship? Well, they didn't act until they received some direction from the Lord in His Word. Well, here's what the Scriptures say that we ought to do in worship. Let's do that, is the idea. Only those things we're going to do in worship, only those things revealed to us or authorized by the Lord in Scripture, especially in the New Testament. You know, it's interesting to me that you know, sometimes people want to go back into the Old Testament and look at the details of worship in the Old Testament and apply that to the church. Let's just go to documents that were written to the church, to churches, and find out what they did in worship, and then we can follow that. 
instruction and that example. So just as Moses did not act without divine guidance, so we don't want to act without approval from God's Word. And just as Moses did not assume that God's silence was permission, so we don't want to make that assumption. So why do we use unleavened bread and fruit of the vine in the Lord's Supper? Why, why those two elements? Well, it's because we have guidance from the New Testament to that effect. That has support from New Testament Scripture. Other elements don't have any support. I mean, we, we could use milk or water, but, but that doesn't have any support from Scripture. And so we use in the Lord's Supper only those elements for which we have scriptural guidance. Why, uh, why baptize by immersion? Why, why do that? Well, because that has support from Scripture. Now, uh, uh, a lot of people baptize in other ways, but, but baptism by immersion has scriptural support. And so here's a person who wants to be baptized. Well, in what, what way will we baptize him? Well, let's don't do anything until we find out from the Lord what we ought to do. And we find, for example, Romans chapter 6, we are buried with Him in baptism. And so baptism is a burial in water. And so that's, 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 that's what we're going to do. We'll follow the guidance that we find from Scripture. And when we come together in worship, why, why do you guys only sing? Why, why do you just sing? Now, a lot of other churches use instruments. Why don't you guys do that? Why, why do you all just sing. Well, we can go to passages like Colossians 3 and verse 16, that the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. Singing. Or singing. That's what we'll sing. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And so it's based on passages like that. That's Okay, well, what are we going to do in worship? Well, let's get some guidance from Scripture. Okay, they sing in worship. We're instructed to sing in worship, and so that's, that's why we sing. Not all churches take this approach, but you see, it's one drawn from Scripture itself. We don't move forward until we find some direction from the Lord. We, we hesitate, we wait until we study what the Lord has said, we ascertain what He would have us to do based on what it says, and then we move forward. We learn that from the man that picked up sticks on the Sabbath day. And the final thing we'll say is that, you know, obedience is important even in the small things. The man committed what might seem to us to be a, a, a transgression of a small detail of the law after all. What difference does a few sticks for a fire make? What, what difference can that make? Going out and picking up some sticks? Come on, you got to be kidding me. That's a capital offense. Yet it made a significant difference to God. If a person disobeys when it's mildly inconvenient to obey, what's he going to do when it's really inconvenient to obey? If a person is careless in small things, why would God expect him to be careful in the big things? Luke 16, verse 10, He who is faithful in very little things is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in little is unrighteous in much. It's in the details. It's in the small things that we prove ourselves to be reliable in the big things. And we, we understand that in our home. 
We give our children small tasks, and they prove their worthiness to take on the larger tasks. So we understand that. And so it's in the details, it's in the small things that we prove ourselves to be faithful servants. Contrast this with Exodus chapter 40, where Moses constructs the tabernacle and all the, you know, all the material in the tabernacle. Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. That is stated in verse 16, 19, 21, 25, 27, 29, and 32. Just a, a refrain. Moses did just as God commanded him. So did he just as God commanded him. He did just, you know, you get the point after a while, don't you? We need to be careful in our obedience, even in the details. Sometimes people will object to this idea. You know, close, close obedience, that's, that's not necessary any longer. You see, we were under grace. But you see, grace is available to give us hope when we sin. It's not permission to sin or be lax in obeying God's Word. When we fall into sin, we have hope by God's grace. But we shouldn't take God's grace as permission to sin. You can see that, for example, I think in... 1 John, what 1 John has to say, chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, don't sin. I'm encouraging you not to sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so our responsibility is to avoid sin. But there's hope for us if we do. And that hope comes through God's grace. Jesus says in Matthew 23 and verse 23, these are the things you should have done. That is, faith and mercy and justice, and not left the other things undone. The small details of tithing in that particular passage. The fact is, if we obey only in areas we think are important, we're not obeying at all. If we obey only in areas we think are important, we're not obeying at all. <laughs> You see, we become judges of the law rather than doers. And so what we're saying is, in my opinion, this law is good, and so I'll do it. Now, in my opinion, this law is not necessary, so I'm not going to do it. But it all depends on my evaluation of the law. That's not obedience, is it? We, we need to, as Christ did, obey in all things. Well, here's a little episode from history, the history of Israel, kind of brief, just a few verses kind of buried there in the middle of the book of Numbers. And it would be easy to overlook. But we have it for a reason. And maybe we've highlighted some of those reasons tonight. And so let's think about those. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come to the end of the day, the Lord's day. And we consider it a blessing, Father, that we've had the opportunity to gather together with your people and spend some time in worship singing songs of praise, uh, studying from Your Word, remembering what Your Son did for us on the cross. We pray, Father, that what we've done today has been pleasing to You. We pray, Father, that it's been uplifting to us as we've done these things, as we've listened to Your Word taught. We pray, Father, that it will sink into our hearts, that it will have a positive influence on us. Our Father, we pray that we will always respect whatever you have made holy, that we'll never profane it, that we'll never consider it a common thing, that it will be special to us, and we'll treat it in a special and reverent and holy way.
Our Father, we pray that you will guide us, that you'll show us what you want to do. And help us, Father, to have that attitude that we will do only what the Lord authorizes us to do. We'll go only where He leads us. And that we'll not depend upon our own judgment and own opinion, but upon the words of Scripture. And Father, we pray that we'll be obedient in all things, that we'll not be judges of the law and trying to decide what's right for us to obey and what's unnecessary, that we'll simply trust You and trust Your Word and, and render obedience, even on those occasions, Father, when we don't understand why You may have required this of us, that we'll simply submit and obey. Help us, Father, as we go through the week. Help us to walk in the steps of Jesus. Help us to be an example to others who might see Him in us and come to glorify You. We ask these things in His name. Amen.